You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom in Santa Fe. Soul Searching is a journey where I engage with an array of thinkers, from faith leaders to academics to artists, to explore deep questions of meaning, questions that all of us ask at some point in our lives, such as why are we here? What is right and wrong? Is there good and evil? Is truth relative or absolute? Is there life after death? And to help us in our journey this evening, we're very honoured to welcome to our show Doug Lynham, financial advisor and former monk and author of the book From Monk to Money Manager. Doug, welcome. Thanks. Thanks, Robert Neil. Great to be here. Thank you. It's great to have you here. So we've got to start with what brought you to becoming a monk? <laughs> That's a big question. And it, just, it ties well into your show, I think, because I didn't grow up with any real religious background. It was a little bit, it was a pretty chaotic uh, childhood growing up. There wasn't a lot of structure and stability. And um, these larger questions of, you know, who am I? Why am I here? And what's the meaning of life? really plagued me from a very young age. And, and I felt like if I didn't understand what the meaning of life was or what my purpose here is, then how do I make any decisions about career or family or these bigger practical questions of how do you orient yourself and operate in the world without some sort of holistic or you know tentative vision of, of what you're supposed to be doing in this life. And so that has draw me on a lifelong spiritual quest, but particularly drew me to a monastery where um, I felt, I know I didn't really, oddly enough, this is kind of weird for some people to, to conceive of, but I didn't really have much faith when I joined the monastery. It mm. was more of a, that was sort of my leap of faith that maybe I would find something there. Huh. That if you're going to try to do a deep dive and find the meaning of life, well, where better place to do that than, than a monastery? So that really started my journey. And I thought it was going to be more like a gap year after college. I was going to take a, a year or two off and kind of figure myself out and, right. and, and my place in the world. And it turned out to be a 20-year adventure where I wow. was a monk for 20 years, and, and it was a good adventure. But that really is what drove, drove me into the monastery. So did you find faith there? I did. Um, and, you know, it's always a work in progress. There's no done point. I think the spiritual journey has no end. How could it? And so we always need to be asking these questions and deepening our, our knowledge, our faith, and our understanding of the world. But yes is the simple answer. So I, I've got to ask, I, I think you you summarized this show really well, better than I've ever done. When you were talking about the meaning of life essentially being the basis for the rest of your decisions in life mm -hmm. or understanding. So does that mean... I mean, let me rephrase. So many people don't know what they're here for, and they just do, mm -hmm. right? So, but you're saying the opposite, which is you've got to find this first. But does that mean we all need to spend 20 years in a monastery? <laughs> how, do we, how do we make decisions without that sense of, oh, I know what I'm here for? Or do we instinctively have that sense, even if it's not totally developed? Hmm. I, I don't know. I can't speak for others. I can only speak for myself. Um, and so for me... I, what I what I could see in the people I grew up with in the world around me was that not having some coherent vision that you're moving towards and deepening into, for me at least, it was leading to a kind of nihilism and despair. Uh, and so, you know, I think the Buddhist insight that life is suffering is quite correct. And so, 
I was dealing with a lot of suffering. I was dealing with a lot of some abuse and trauma from growing up. And the real question is, if, if this suffering has no meaning, then mm-hmm. why keep doing it? Right. right. So, so I think without some hope, without some guiding light to, to pull you forward, then for me it would have been, um, I think, a, a, a continually spiraling downward journey into a kind of hopelessness. So what brings – I mean you're, you're clearly a profound thinker. Mm. What brings somebody who is a, a monk, who is a, a spiritually aware person, mm. what brings them from being that – to being a money manager. And, and I don't say money manager in con- total contradistinction like you have to be thoughtless and just with numbers. Right. But, but there must be a journey if you're talking about a journey. So, so what was that journey for you from monk to money manager? Well, so I grew up in a wealthy family. And so, but money in my, in my home was weaponized and it was used as a tool to manipulate, control, and abuse others. And so I really firmly believe you know, that adage that money is the root of all evil. And so I was really rejected the whole world of materialism. And part of the attraction to the monastery for me was, hey, I get to put the world away for a while, or maybe hopefully permanently, and, and never have a, to deal with this money thing, right. or these practical considerations ever again. And unfortunately, what happened several years into my journey at the monastery was, and it's a long story, but the punchline is, is that we all thought that money was the root of all evil, and none of us wanted to tackle these pragmatic considerations forthrightly, and that led us to some serious financial difficulties, and ultimately it meant the monastery went bankrupt. So in that context, um, I sort of these two worlds of too much money being used and abused in my childhood story and then in the monastery, the complete rejection of it led to just a terrible place. It wasn't like things worked out well on that front. And so there was a pragmatic consideration. There was no one in our community with the tools to solve these financial struggles. So it fell on me for whatever reason to to figure it out. And that really began my my journey, this many, many decades journey to find that middle way. What's the healthy balance between complete rejection of the material world and then an overly sort of greedy or abusive relationship to the material world? And then we could go into more beyond that. It gets a little, the story has lots of twists and turns. Um, but after getting communities on solid financial ground, um, you know, I was a junior monk by 30 years. Mm-hmm. I was I was the low kid on, on the totem pole. And, you know, all religious communities have their internal hierarchies and structures. And sure. for whatever reason, probably good, I wasn't really encouraged to give spiritual advice to guests and people who came looking for help, which they often do to any any religious faith community. But um, something curious struck me that I would say maybe half or maybe 90% of the guests who would come to the monastery looking for spiritual guidance or solace, if you dug behind it, mm-hmm. most of their problems were financial. There was some really? financial component whether behind their immediate spiritual crises. And so they would ask me to pray for them, which I would do, but right. then I'd also say, well, Let's make a budget, right? Let's kind huh. of figure out how we're going to deal with this credit card. Pray debt. with numbers, right? These student loans, the wow. the, the horrible, you know, whether you're going through divorce or just alimony or child support. So I realized I had a talent. I, I wasn't really going to give people spiritual advice because I didn't really know what I was doing, but I did have some technical expertise, and I was able to share that, and that became a, a deepening fascination with the world of finance. Right. And then there's more twists we can get into. So. 
you, you said you quoted earlier this idea of money is the root of all evil. Mm-hmm. And you said that um, <clears throat> how you how you used to feel that way and then learn not to mm-hmm. feel that way. I'm no Christian Bible scholar, but it isn't the the actual quotation that it's the love of money mm-hmm. uh, that is the root of all evil. Correct. So is that where your book goes? Is that where you go that it's okay to have money? It's just not okay to be obsessed with money. Is that is that's a good way of that's a good pithy way of summarizing it. Um, I sort of I haven't read it yet. I'm afraid that's so. okay. No worries. So I, I sort of dig into the Greek text in the Bible for that oh, yes. a little bit. And if you look at that phrase, the love of money, it, the word in Greek is agape, or excuse me, um, phil argyria, phil argyria. So phil, there's in you know, there's different roots for the word of love in Greek, mm-hmm. uh, eros, philos, and agape. Maybe right. you, you're familiar with those. I'm sure. Um, and so it's really arguing against this – and Argyria means silver. So Phil Argyria means love of silver, a temple, a, a, an earthly sort of love. Mm-hmm. And I guess I make a complicated philosophical argument that what we need is agape love. We need sort of a divine uh-huh. love in our money so that it, it's a tool to be of love and service in the world. And when we take that approach, I think we can have a healthier relationship to our money. So how do we get there? <laughs> well, one one book. In <laughs> I think you just had a therapist uh, for another episode. Maybe it's more of a therapy question because everyone everyone's struggle is unique. Right. Um, and one of the fun things I had doing in the in my book from monk to money manager was laying out what I call uh, about fourteen different archetypes or, ah. or money monsters. That I think we all have right. And so we we have different money monsters each of us that we have to overcome. But it's at least acknowledging what they are and then trying to find a healthy way forward that that makes sense for us individually. That sounds fascinating, really. So I guess there's a lot of questions. Our society is so based around money mm-hmm. now, about, around ownership, and the ownership becomes almost um, keeping up with the Joneses, mm-hmm. and now we can do more and so on. That Success is seen as having money, mm-hmm. um, or having money is seen as success. And then you have this sort of counter-movement of no, let's reject all of this, but not in a monastery sense, but in a all money is basically giving in to the capitalist giant who forms us and shapes us in ways that are unhealthy to us. Where do you fall in that spectrum, I guess? Mm. Well, I would I would think it's probably the most important lesson I've learned is to decouple material success and spiritual success. To I think there's so many... Um, logical fallacies or philosophical flaws out there, which is the idea that if you have money, you're morally – like the prosperity gospel is well, the prosperity gospel, yeah. of, of a horrible – it's a good example of a bad example of what not to do. Does that make any sense? Um, <laughs> I untangle that sense a little bit. But so the prosperity gospel basically says if you have money, it's because basically God loves you more than the rest of us. Um, and then there's the there's the opposite of that, which is holy poverty, which is that if you're poor, then somehow God loves you more than the rest of us. Um, and there's lots of uh, pitfalls on that spectrum between, right. and the the two are just simply uncorrelated. That your your spiritual progress and your material progress are simply two different worlds that need to work together and operate. But um, I don't think there are wonderful people at every socioeconomic status. And there's some pretty horrible people at every level of the socioeconomic status. And to think that somehow there's any real correlation there between spirituality and material prosperity is, is in my opinion, a, a root of a great many flaws. And so um, – And personal pain, I would assume, as yeah, well. Because exactly. if you don't have money and you see other people who are successful, if you follow that gospel, then you're basically saying God must not love me. Mm-hmm. Right. 
But I, I guess this comes from a very biblical sense of reward and punishment, mm -hmm. of measure for measure, mida keneged mida in Judaism, um, or early Judaism, certainly. I guess part of it is a projection of what does it mean for there to be a just God? Mm -hmm. Because if you believe that God is just, then bad people aren't given rewards. Mm -hmm. So there must be something, you know, if they are successful, then maybe they have been good, but we just don't know how or something like mm -hmm. that. But then the book of Job totally answers against that and says, no, you don't know. You don't understand. Right. Good and evil is, you know, the things that happen to you are not because of anything that you may have done or not. You're, you just don't know the plan. Right. And, you know, this is going to depend on your, on your faith journey a lot. Um, but we also have to – we have two big questions on the table. One is the nature of evil. Like why, mm. and, and one could argue that all world religions historically have kind of been shipwrecked on the question of evil. This is the, this is the heart of, you know, how can a just and loving God allow bad things to happen? And that's probably a whole book and maybe a whole show. We could go into that. Definitely. Um, and, and I don't know if I have, a, I don't have a simple answer that I could put into a soundbite, but that's sort of the one problem. And then this idea of free will on the other, right. that we have free will. And so we have responsibility for our actions and then responsibility for the outcome in our lives. So maybe a, a a glib answer to your question would be to say that um, when it comes to material things, um, you know, God's not going to work a miracle to solve a problem that you have the power to fix. And so with that in mind, if it's within your milieu or within your, your, your capacity, so to speak, to say, get out of credit card debt or solve, save for college and retirement, then you can't just sort of put these things off and hope that the God who loves you is going to uh, build up your, your 401k account for you, for example. Right. These things require individual responsibility and us to step up and take ownership of these things and not, not assume that we can just, uh, in a childlike way, assume that the the father who loves us is going to magically miraculously take care of all of our material needs we have some free will and responsibility for ourselves on that front there's an old joke i'm sure it's not just a jewish joke about the person who turns his eyes up to heaven and says you know god can i please win the lottery and a voice comes down and says at least buy a ticket yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? that's a great one so we're going to take a, a break we're going to come back afterwards to talk since you started talking about responsibility mm -hmm. we're going to talk about financial responsibility and, and what that means yeah so um, you're listening to Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil from Temple Beth Shalom. My guest this evening, Doug Lynham, and we're going to be uh, back after this break. You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. My guest this evening, uh, Doug Lynham, former monk and financial advisor, author of From Monk to Money Manager, um, uh, which has wonderful alliteration for <laughs> a title. Um, and we've been talking about um, economics and finances and personal responsibility. What's the personal responsibility when it comes to finances? What should we be doing? Is there are there ethical ways to to use our money? What, what's is how do we connect morality and money? Well, um, I would argue that you know there's this cliche that money makes the world go round, and and there's some real truth to that. We also want to talk about a higher order to the universe. Maybe God is the axis of the universe, but you know, huh. m money makes the world go round, and so. The real struggle for me that I've been on my journey has been to figure out how do we bring these two worlds together, the spiritual and the material. Mm. Um, because money is simply the tool that allows us to act in the world. I couldn't get to this interview without my car, right. and I had to buy that. I had to insure it. I had to gas it. So I had to take some responsibility for these things in order to have the basic material needs just to do this interview, right? right. So, so those 
money is going to um, it's what we use to operate day to day almost you can't good or bad maybe this is my my maybe I'm being a little too cynical but you cannot operate in the world without money it's just not possible you can't even get in your car and go somewhere so with that in mind how can money not be infused with our highest spiritual ideals mm. if we if we if we completely separate money and ethics then we're if if our theology and our philosophies and our ideas about ethics um, are there to guide our action. That it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's through our actions that our spirituality needs to manifest itself. Everything else, to me, is kind of um, second. You can believe all the right things, so to speak. You can profess all the right things. But if it isn't manifesting in your behavior, it's not any good. It doesn't right. do you any good. So, so with that understanding that it's through action that our spirituality manifests – and money is the tool through which we operate on a day-to-day world. We right. got we have to bring these two together, and they can't be be separate. So, how do you do it pragmatically? What does mm-hmm. it look like on a day-to-day basis? Very difficult question to answer, but we at least need to be mindful of it and be asking the right questions of ourselves, and saying, how are we being of love and service? And what's my unique gift? What's my unique talents? And how is money allowing me to bring that out into the world? I, I find this idea of the spirituality of money fascinating. Mm. I really do. Um, I, I know there's – I'm not an economist, mm-hmm. so I, I don't know about these things of, you know, zero-sum economics mm-hmm. and ESG and, and things like Can you share your perspectives on on these things? Sure. There's, that's a lot to untangle. Yes, sorry. But I would say <laughs> first, one of the – maybe two points about ethics and money is when we look at our spiritual scriptures, there were there are two big kind of – epiphanies that I had for myself. One was to first realize that, for example, science wasn't invented when our spiritual texts were written. Mm -hmm. So we don't use them as scientific handbooks. Right, the modern scientific method. So we're not going to use any of our spiritual texts to build a cell phone. It's not going to be a helpful tool to give us really... uh, Well, you could could quote... He called out to God. You know, right. Ah, well, now I, need to build, now I need to build a cell phone. Right. In a radio tower. But, and to call yes, out. Right, right. but practically speaking, but, yes. But that's a metaphor to understand a little right. bit better the problem with economics and spirituality because mm. economics wasn't invented until the 1500s. So when we look at our classical texts, our, our holy t- sacred works, we have to keep in mind that economics was not invented yet. Right. So the spiritual value, values we need to cling to tightly, but to take those literally and make them a, try to practically apply them to our modern economical system is going to be a bit – it's going to grind. The gears are going to grind. Right. So we, we need to – that's sort of the, on the economic level when people start saying, well, this quote, that quote. It's like, well, yeah, you know, we need to understand the context in which those were, those were, where those were spoken. So, so that's one big insight. And then maybe the second uh, insight – was that in our modern economic system, it's no longer what we call zero-sum. Now, to back that up a little bit, what is zero-sum thinking? Well, zero-sum thinking is like sports. So in a sports game, if you have two teams opposing each other, if one team is plus one point, the other place is, the other team is minus one point. Right. So you add those together, you get zero. So plus one, minus one is right. zero. So winners and losers. Winners and losers. Right. So in biblical times, particularly in, in, in Christian biblical times, Economics was zero-sum primarily. The wealth of one person almost always came at the expense or exploitation of someone else. 
And now in a modern economic system, it's no longer like that. It can be, but it, it, on the, doesn't it tend to be still? No, it's actually far more based on cooperation and mutual inter- interdependency than anything else. And there's nothing. So, so what I call the holy trinity of finance, right? right? And the holy trinity of finance is earning, saving, and investing. So if I work my job and I earn my salary and I save a portion of my income and I invest it ethically, mm-hmm. no one is worse off. No one had to lose for me to to earn, save, and ethically build my wealth. It's more like going to the gym, right? right. If I go to the gym, no one is in worse shape because I've put in some hard work in physical fitness. And But, okay, I'm, I'm going to play devil's advocate mm-hmm. now. What if it's an unethical gym mm-hmm. where the people who work at the gym, who support you in the gym, mm-hmm. are treated really badly? Mm-hmm. And so you don't see the effects of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I appreciate when you said before about, you know, investing your money ethically. I, mm-hmm. I, of course, that's essential. But nonetheless, we can convince ourselves that things are harmless when they're not. Mm-hmm. You know, the car that you mentioned before that you drove here did pollute the atmosphere. Absolutely. Right? The clothes that we wear may have been produced by people in, in essentially slave conditions mm-hmm. or the phone that you mentioned earlier. So does are we not convincing ourselves or is it actually – am I just being totally cynical and as, is it much more cooperative than, than I think? Well, I mean think of your like, – even in business, right? If you think of a business as a team of people working together – they have to be cooperating more than they're competing, right? Now, my company might be competing against another company. Right. And so the, if I win a client, they don't get that client, that's certainly going to be zero sum. Right. But, but if you try to operate in the business world without cooperation, you're not going to get very far. Like it's just not going to work out very well for you in the long term. So there's always going to be this competitive nature to be sure. Um, but there's also this cooperative side that what we can see, particularly in, in capitalism, for all of its many, 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 many flaws, um, it still tends to produce more, uh, a better quality of life for more people than not, than any, than any of the other bad systems we've come up with. It's fascinating. It sounds to me like your financial perspective is almost bro- um, uh, influenced by ecology. Mm-hmm. Would that be – That's a great – I hadn't thought of it that way, but that's a great way of looking at it, that you have an economic ecology that's either healthy or, or, or quite destructive. And so to the point of pollution and things like that, these are what in economic terms we call externalities right. is the technical term for it that we use. But there's always going to be externalities and those things need to be carefully monitored, regulated, hopefully legislated about. Um, but – and that's really the role of government in part to do that as well as our, our religious and, and philosophical belief systems. Right. But – um, all in all, we've seen one of the great pieces of news coming out of modern economics is in the past 20 years, we just pulled a billion people out of dire poverty through better economic infrastructures around the world, and it's growing. There are now more people – and this sounds like a weird stat – there are more people in the world suffering from obesity than from starvation. Huh. And we've, we've hit – That's interesting. By far. And so we think of obesity as a problem, sure, but it's actually a good problem to have. Well, it's a better problem than starvation. Exactly right. So in, in preparing for this, I, I remember you talking about how it's essential to be a little bit wealthy. Mm-hmm. What, what does that mean for you? Well, in, think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Mm-hmm. We all have basic needs, food, clothing, shelter, security. So without some basic financial literacy, you aren't going to get your basic needs met. Right. And that's going to leave you in a very desperate situation where the higher order levels of thinking about 
morality and ethics and divine. Mm. These things are sort of there isn't a lot of space in your world to be able to tackle the more meaning meaning based issues when you're just struggling for your survival. And w- like it or not, we all need to be saving for our retirement. We all, you know, if you have kids, you want to be able to put them through college. You want to be able to pay your medical bills. Mm-hmm. You want to be able to have some degree of security so that the financial winds of change don't knock you on your backside, you know, at any given moment. And so many people live that life where they have no emergency savings. They, right. have, they have no um, – I think the, the last stat I heard said the average American could not come up with uh, $1,000 if they needed to to cover an emergency expense. They don't have it. And right. so then it goes on credit cards and that creates a vicious cycle of debt and poverty. So when I say we all need to be a little bit wealthy, I, that's what I'm referring to. You need to have some financial security to meet your basic needs. And also to be able to have a secure life, we got kind of con- money stress is toxic. Right. Okay. So money stress, we now know, is well, let, me, let me rephrase it, maybe put it in a positive way. Um, your 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 perceived financial well being mm-hmm. mm-hmm. has a bigger impact on your overall happiness or sense of well being than your physical fitness, mm-hmm. your job satisfaction, and your relationship stability combined. So, and your socioeconomic status is the best predictor we have for death, disease, and mortality. So if you tell me what your income level is, I have a pretty good idea of what, how long you're likely to live, how likely you are to get serious illnesses and disease, and then face injury. So, so these are pragmatic things that we're trying to mitigate suffering, right? So yes, life is suffering, but we don't need to add heap more mountains of it on top of ourselves than are naturally going to be present. And and a little bit of wealth really does upgrade your life significantly and can remove some of these toxic stressors that um, can really make make life quite difficult. I think this is fascinating because it sounds to me like there's two senses of spirituality uh, coming from what you're saying. The one is that um, money needs to be a reflection of our being and who we are and, and what we represent, the, 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 our answer to the question of why am I here and what's my life's meaning. But the other is money is essential because without it, you can't even stop and think about those bigger questions. So it becomes a, a, a vicious cycle, basically, mm-hmm. that being a, a, what was the phrase, a little bit wealthy, right. being a little bit wealthy helps you is essential as a reflection of that, but also leads you towards that. Exactly right. I think you said it very, very well. I think I, I think this is it's a fascinating spirituality because we don't talk about money. We talk about scripture. We talk mm-hmm. about acts and deeds and so on, and and you know looking after those in need. But but actually, to use money as a way of saying this is an essential tool. This is a gift that I can use. Not a gift based on as you were saying before, not a gift based on our merit, mm-hmm. but a gift based on just the fact that we have it and other people don't, mm-hmm. that we can use it and, and explore life further. Yeah, exactly right. So if we're rounding off, how would you, how would you like people very briefly to, to view money in a spiritual sense? I would say that when you align your money with your values, you have the most powerful tool available to change the world. So one of my taglines is that you know, money without compassion is abusive, hmm. but compassion with money can change the world. Hmm. 
I think that's wonderful. Thank you. This has been absolutely fascinating. I know there's so much more that I'd want to talk to you about, so hopefully you'll be able to come back. I would love to. Thank you. So thanks to Doug Lynham, former monk, current financial advisor, uh, and also author of the book From Monk to Money Manager, which is out now, isn't yes. it? So you've been listening to Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and from the leadership, Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. And until we return again in two weeks' time, Keep searching.